I don't know what Tu Bishvat's going to be about in 300 years from now, but I would hope that those people living 300 years from now wouldn't forget. They would add their piece to the puzzle. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org. Hello, everyone. This is Atzvi Hirschfield. I am speaking with you from beautiful Room One in the Pardes Institute. And it is my pleasure to have as my chavruta today, Aviva Lauer Goldberg, who is director of the Pardes Center of Jewish Educators, Jewish Education. Pardes Center for Jewish Educators. Thank you. I can't believe I got that somewhat incorrect. Uh, she is a beloved uh, text teacher and teacher of teachers. Uh, Aviva, you made Aliyah about 24 years ago. 21. 21. Don't make me I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, of course. I'm sure you were too. And uh, sure. Aviva has a real passion for Tanakh and Parshanut and Midrash, and as I said, also for Jewish education. And uh, it's a privilege to have you here, and hopefully this will be timely, because we're going to be talking about Tubishvat. So this is the season, as Tubishvat is only a few days away. Yes. Welcome, Aviva. Thank you so much for having me here, Tzvi. Tis the season for okay. Tubishvat. So, you know, Aviva... Not too many people, I guess some people, the more mystically inclined, tend to do a lot with Tubishvat, with the whole Tubishvat Seder. Uh, some people just make do with eating dried fruit that turns out it's imported from Turkey, <laughs> which is even more disappointing, right. I think. I mean, I was a kid uh, at Schechter, we used to get those little boxes what? of... Of Buxer, no? But, oh, I think that was in there also, even though I'm not much of a carob guy, but yeah. Uh, and uh, but it seems like this this day actually is more meaningful for you than mm. just dried fruit or uh, Tu Bishvat Seder, and uh, it seems you've chosen a text that's related. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts on Tu Bishvat. Sure. So I think one of the reasons that I really love Tu Bishvat is that it um, encompasses a, a lot of values that. I hold dear. I think that, um, you know, environmentalism and the love of the land and spirituality, connection to the divine, all of those those pieces really are important to me in my life. But there's another element that I think um, makes it even more interesting, and that is that um, Tupishvat is kind of a puzzle, I would say. Um, you could look at, as, look at it as, as a puzzle um, where there are four interconnected pieces, um, or even more than four, and trying to sort of put together that puzzle for me has been really interesting. Um, When I talk about a puzzle, I mean the idea of the evolution of this holiday from ancient times until today. Um, These these various different pieces have um, maybe even moved, shifted, shifted their shape um, to come together to become this very interesting evolutionary Tubishvat puzzle. Does that make sense to you? I think it does. Let, let's talk about it. So Tubishvat, from my recollection, you know, the, the Talmud doesn't have a tractate about it. It's not, uh, it's not really spoken about as a special day, but it's more a, a day that marks the time. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that uh, Mishnah and tractate Rosh Hashanah. Sure. So it's the first Mishnah of the first parak of tractate Rosh Hashanah, um, and it doesn't 
just talk about the Rosh Hashanah that we all know, which is at the beginning of Tishrei. Um, the Mishnah talks about four different Rosh Hashanah, four different New Year's. Um, That's a lot of partying. They probably didn't mean it that way. Well, no, I don't think they did. That's actually really the point. There wasn't partying going on during these New Year's. They were very sort of technical cutoff days in terms of um, taxes, in terms of when so when a fiscal year be- ended and began um, or when a um, the year of the king, I'm sure there's some kind of special name for that. But, um, you know, w- when a king becomes a king, if he starts, let's say, a month before Nisan, if his Rosh Hashanah um, is the first of Nisan, if he is crowned king on the first of Adar, when it becomes the first of Nisan, that's already considered a year. That day is the Rosh Hashanah for kings because it's, because it's the cutoff day. So second day of Nisan, he's in year two of his reign. Exactly. Got it. And so all of these Rosh Hashanah days are really very, very mundane almost. They're very technical. And the the Rosh Hashanah for trees, Le'ilanot, which is Tu Bishvat in this Mishnah, um, the idea there is that if a tree has started to bud, if the sap has begun to rise before that day of the the date of the fifteenth of Shvat, then one takes tithes off of that tree, and and pays those tithes to the Beit Hamikdash, to the temple, to the Kohanim, etc. But if that tree has not yet started to ripen and bud, etc., then you don't count it amongst that year's tithes. So it's really just very, very technical. That's, so it's, that's it's what so that really, is. So in the Mishnah, it is a, a way of determining something very ritual, very formal. When To which tithing year does the fruit on my apple tree belong? And it depends on when it buds, before the 15th, after the 15th. Does not sound very much about environmentalism or spirituality or land. So... How did we end up with our four glasses of wine and red and white and all these different fruits and so on? Right. That's a really great question. I mean, um, was it was it a special day? Was it just sort of tax day, you know, like an April 15th sort of thing? Although April 15th is the day that generally we have to pay taxes by. Correct. And here is April 15th or their April 15th, their Tubishvat was the day you started to pay taxes on a particular tree. Um, so... Was it a special day? I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure. And how did it get to be this day where we're eating buxer or we're, you know, running around taking off school and um, in Israel at least planting trees? Um, the, over the years, it evolved based on the circumstances of, um, of the Jews who were celebrating it. When the temple was destroyed in 70 CE by the Romans, there was no temple to pay tithes to. There were no kohanim to, to give that tzedakah to or give that tzedakah is maybe not the right word at all, to pay that maser to. So it could have been a day that was just completely done with. Um, and it really was pretty much done with for a very long time. You know, there were PU team, there were there were um, certain types of poems written about it, but that was like in memory of it. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a day that anybody actually um, functionally commemorate, commemorated or, or celebrated. Um, but at some point, 1,500 years later in Sfat, when the Kabbalists took, you know, became became um, really active and flourished there, they re, I would say they even sort of, what's it called when you, when something is dead and buried and then you... You reinvigorate it, you... 
bring it back to life, you restore it. Yeah, they somehow restored it to life, but in a very different form. They saw the idea of a tree as something very um, metaphysical, um, magical almost. Maybe that's a word I shouldn't be using. Um, Maybe magical sounds inappropriate um, or subversive. But they saw a tree as... Um, sort of a metaphor, a metaphysical metaphor for the way to reach God. So they said, okay, let's spend a day each year on the day that is the holiday for trees talking about the tree, the most important tree, which is the metaphorical, metaphysical tree of life, which is their way of thinking about reaching God. Um, and they decided, let's let's make a I don't want to say a party, but let's make a Seder out of this. Let's do something really serious out of this. So it's interesting because it sounds like what you're describing in the rabbinic period, we're looking at a more ritualized, like as you said, a fiscal, a tax day of, of how to divide up one's tithes goes dormant because there's no relevance. And then we come to Tzfat and Kabbalists are sort of using this day, but very metaphorically. And yet here we are, and I feel like there's another, if you like the Kabbalistic term Gilgul, another evolution, where we're not talking about metaphysical spiritual trees. We're actually talking about real live trees. As you said, we're planting trees here in the land of Israel. And uh, so it sounds like there's like this evolution or change that some the form kind of stays, but the content shifts around. So I I would like to take a look at the text that you've chosen about that, because I'm assuming it connects for you for how you make meaning out of this day today, and then come back to this idea, both personally and as an educator, this idea of taking older forms and giving them new meaning and have a little talk with you about that, because I think that'd be very interesting. Terrific. So let's start. What text did you bring for us? I bet you it's tree-related. And it's printed on paper, which is also tree-related. Yeah, oy vey. No, the tree was happy to do it. You think? I'm positive. Okay. The paper is smiling. Maybe Shel Silverstein's tree would have been happy. I, I'm not sure about oh, you know the other tree. I, I just want to something. I just want to say something interesting about the difference between um, you know that original that original Tubishvat and the Tubishvat where today people go around planting trees. You know, and and JNF apparently according to according to Wikipedia, um, more than a million people come out and. Um, plant trees on Tubishvat every year. I kind of well, all doubt those school the veracity children, of that. All those school children have yeah, to do it. But what's interesting is that the original Tubishvat, it wasn't about planting at all, right? right. It was about um, when the trees started to bud, started to the fruit started to ripen, whereas now it's all about the nitiot. It's all about the planting. Um, and, you know, those are Technically, those are very different times of year. The seasons are, are for those two things, are, are quite different. But um, something about, like you said, something about the, the form and the content um, that, that maybe, maybe it's that the content stayed the same, but the form changed. I don't know. I'm not sure which one it is, whether it's the form that stays the same and the content changed or vice versa. So anyway, let's, yes, let's get to our, our text. Okay, so take us through. Tell us where we are, and uh, we'll learn a little Torah. Okay, so this text actually, um, despite the fact that I've chosen it to um, to represent the fourth Gilgul, the fourth evolution of Tu Bishvat, which is kind of like 
um, and, and Judaism's Earth Day, a day for envir- environmentalism, um, it's it's a source that's that's you know quite old. Um, probably from the 8th century, um, from the Midrash of Kohelet Rabbah, Ecclesiastes Rabbah, um, from the 7th Parsha, and it goes like this. Shall we uh, read it out? Let's do it. Okay. So when God created the first human being, God led um, the first human being around the Garden of Eden and sort of did a, a little a little tour of the trees of the Garden of Eden. And God said to Adam, Look at everything that I've made, how beautiful, how excellent these things are, essentially these trees. Everything that I created, I created for you. Tend atcha shelote kalkel vetachariv et olami shiim kilkalta en mishi takena harecha. Pay attention, see to it that you do not mess up my worlds. Don't don't mess with the things that I created for you. Because if you do, if you mess them up, there's not going to be anyone afterward to repair them for you. Wow. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions that I noticed and, and, and hear what you have to say. First of all, there's this tension. It's my world, but it's for you. So is it a gift? It's not a gift. Is it a rental? That was one thing that occurred to me. But then it seems to flip back, right? Don't mess it up. Not because it'll bother me, because it'll ruin it for you. That uh, I'm not in this to keep cleaning up after you. Uh, you're going to have to, quote, unquote, clean up after yourself. So I'm just wondering... Hmm. How you understand those tensions? Whose world is it? Who do the trees belong to? So I want to answer that by going back to that first text, um, thinking about the, the technical nature of Tubishvat. Um, when I you know, wrote this, this article um, recently and put it up on Elmad um, and really talked about this, you know, I guess I sort of played down that first instance of Tubishvat, and my father um, wrote to me, um, beautiful article. Couldn't we say that in the first instance of Tubishvat, really what's going on there is it's a time for people to step back and acknowledge that they don't own those trees. They have to give a tithe because they have to acknowledge God, this is actually yours. I don't, this is not my work. This is your work. So, um, I wrote back to him, oh, yeah, of course, thinking to myself, that's totally what I believe. And I totally learned that from him. So why didn't I put that in there? Um, I do think that, so if, if we go back to that first instance, the trees belong to God, and we have to acknowledge that God is the creator. We shouldn't think that everything we do is because of us. So now going back to our text that we just read, is it the same thing? Is it that God, God is the owner, God is the creator, God is putting us on this earth to do whatever we're meant to do, but we have to take personal responsibility because God is sharing the, the, sharing the earth with us and sharing the responsibility with us to, for its upkeep. Um, God is sort of saying, listen, I did this. It's here. You are. You have to take responsibility because that's, I don't clean up after you. That's not my job. 
My job was to put it here for you and your job is to keep it in shape. So if you don't do that, oh well, that's your problem. It definitely belongs to God, but the responsibility definitely belongs to us. So do you think God, is there a preference of how we use it or is this more like the parents saying, you know, if you misuse it, you lose it, but it's on you? Or do you think God, there's also a message here about how we should use these gifts? I think there's definitely a message in in God saying, look at the things that I created, how beautiful they are, how excellent they are. Naim, Meshubachin. God does care very much in this Midrash. And I think, you know, this is my belief, part of my belief system. God cares very much what we do with the world. God wants us to keep it at the level where God can continue to be proud of it and proud of us for keeping it that way. Um, I mean, parents, when parents say to their kids, you know, I'm giving this to you, you now have to decide what to do with it, or, you know, it's up to you, you're, they, they do care. Of course they care, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I know, never when mean you say it's that really to, up to you. Yeah, I just lie when I say that. For sure. And whenever I say something like that to my kids, I think, oh God, what's going to happen? Are they going to? Are they going to take me at face value and just do whatever they want? Of course they don't because my kids are perfect. Well, we know that. Yeah. Mine aren't for those listening at home. Yeah. Your kids are lovely. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So what then is your takeaway? What what should Tubishvat be about? If, if this Midrash sort of for you highlights, it sounds like we were saying there's a deep lesson here for you, that you uh, want to be reminded of how the world is a gift from God and how it's, and at the same time, we're responsible for it. Like that, that dual message of both seeing it as a gift and at the same time taking responsibility as if it's yours. So what, what should be happening on Tubishvat mm. for you or so for us? I, I think that you can get that message from each of the different evolutions, each of the different Gilgulim of Tubishvat. Um, you know, so whether you're thinking about um, the more yearning for connection to loving of the land of Eretz Yisrael, which um, for me in, in, in terms of history was the third Gilgul, um, you know, that, that's something that's proactive. You know, we go, the, the kids go out and plant. Um, if you're thinking about it in terms of the Kabbalistic um, 16th century Seder, that's also proactive. The Kabbalists were going out and saying, we need to do something in order to reach God, to reach the divine. We're going to eat these different fruits in this different order um, with the different colors and the different, you know, the different criteria for the fruit um, because we are actively doing something to be responsible for our own destiny. We want our destiny to be spiritual perfection. Um, if we're talking about environmentalism, which is seemingly the the latest Gilgul, it's about it's about doing, it's about preserving, it's about recycling, it's about um caring. So I think that actually is the message of each Gilgul that we have to what with whatever value we're caring about, we have to be really proactive about it because this earth this earth is God's and and we're God's partners. Um what I envision, I've never actually done this. I, I'm not sure it's taken me just 42 years to get to this. But I actually envision a Tubishvat Seder, because the number four is so important in any Seder, in the Pesach Seder, and also in the Tubishvat Seder, certainly there's four cups of wine, four types of fruit. 
I envision the four Gilgulim being um, each of them being focused on with a with a different cup of wine or a different activity or a different type of fruit. You know, going from the rabbinic times, the Mishnaic times, um, moving into the Kabbalistic times, then moving into the Aliyot um, of the, the 19th and 20th centuries, and then moving into the 21st century and thinking about the environment. I think of an experiential type of Seder where each of those is touched upon, and anybody who, um, who attends or takes part, hopefully something, one of those, if not more than one, will resonate with them. Wow. So let me let me tell you what I've gotten so far, because I feel like this is very inspiring. I might actually have to do something on Tubishvat now, which, you know, okay, Aviva, thanks for that. So with with the rabbis, it's about mitzvot. It's about uh, recognizing our ritual obligations uh, towards the produce that we have, which, again, I, I agree with you, has this beautiful idea that it's not all mine, that—, that I have to serve God with what I've been given and and share with what I've been given. And then we end up with the Kabbalists sort of focusing on the spiritual yearning element of it, right? The the metaphorical tree and the idea of growth and growing spiritually and coming closer to God. Yes. And then we come to contemporary Zionism or early Zionism. It's about reclaiming the land of Israel. It's not the spiritual it maybe is a type of spiritual yearning but it's very much in the earth yeah, it's not and in the rocks it's not all, metaphorical not metaphysical it's physical and then we go to another step where you're saying it's not just the land of Israel it's a universalist appreciation of of nature as a whole exactly. at the same time if i understand you correctly you're saying the seeds you like the way i threw the word seeds in there as a nice, metaphor everyone nice. that the seeds for all this it's always there all the time it's just a question of what we emphasize mm-hmm. or what we look at that you're not that you found this message of environmentalism in a midrash 2,000 years ago. Now, this is not that we're creating things out of whole cloth, but it's just a question of focus or, you know, the metaphor that I like. It's the diamond. The facets are all there, but you're turning it and looking at it from different perspectives. So, yes. Well, Right. So I guess the bigger question is an educator. Like, what does this say to you as a model in terms of what we should be doing with holidays, with prayer, with text? Hmm. Well, I think that not only is it interesting intellectually, but I think in terms of in terms of values and meaning making, looking at any Jewish holiday, there can be this sort of um, puzzle puzzle play um, with the different the different evolutions or the different um, you know facelifts um, of each holiday. Tubishvat, I think, is the most obvious one, but Hanukkah certainly is one. Um, you know, w- w- what is the main message of Hanukkah? Is, is it about religious freedom? Is it about um, f- uh, national independence? You know, what is it that we're focusing on? Um, and at different times in history, different Jews focused on different pieces because they were meaning more important and meaningful to them at that time in their situation. I mean, you can do the same thing with Pesach. Um, you know, what, what is the main, what's the main theme of Pesach? Is it about we were slaves in Egypt and therefore we're never going to let that happen to ourselves us again, to ourselves again, or we were slaves in Egypt. So we have to make sure that doesn't happen to anyone else in the whole world. Right. And different people will look at it different ways. Um, and, and I find that, I find that, I mean, game is a is a is a terrible word for it, but it's it's process. We that can call process, it a process. Yes, that process is is deeply 
um, satisfying, I think, to think about the different types of Jews over the years and what they've cared about and what they've needed to care about. Um, but in terms of text, I think what's so what's so special is is being able to find a text and of course looking at it within its context and of course not not taking it out of its context, but finding a text that says to you something that's from you know two thousand three thousand years ago that says, wait a second, the value that I I hold so close to me is actually a Jewish value um, because it comes from a Jewish text. And at least for me, that makes me feel like I'm connected. That makes me feel like that value is something that is bigger than just what I care about from my own little life. Um, do, do you ever think about or are concerned about that maybe are there limits to how far this can grow? Like I'm wondering in your mind, I'm going to ask you some hard questions now, but you like hard questions, Aviva. Oh, sure. uh, a, a Jew who gets so focused on the universal environmentalist element of it, there's no more connection to the Tubishvat of the Mishnah. There's no connection to the Tubishvat Svat. There's no connection even to the to the Tubishvat of uh, the JNF, right? Tubishvat, when I was a kid, that was the JNF Super Bowl. Right. That was their Yom Kippur, right? <laughs> right? In other words, and so I'm wondering, is there a concern that as these evolutions happen, that it's no longer rooted in where it started? And how do you imagine balancing all of that out? Well, that's why I really like that idea of the the Seder that I suggested that includes pieces of all of the different um the different formats or the different uh, evolutions um, or iterations, because Judaism is all about balance, I think. Um, Judaism is about seeing all of the different pieces. So, um, yes, one person might feel really, really strongly about one particular value, but I don't think that they should ever lose sight of the other values. So the, the balance, the juggling almost, the putting together of that puzzle, that to me is the ultimate to be shvad. Um, and who knows? I mean, I don't know what Tu Bishvat's going to be about in 300 years from now. It might be about something completely different. I can't even imagine. But, but not. I would hope that those people living 300 years from now wouldn't forget the four previous iterations. Um, that they would, they would add their piece to the puzzle. You know, the path you're describing it occurs to me. It's not so easy. I'm wondering. You know, knowing you a little bit as I do. It sounds like you're always going to be standing. I, I have this image of you encouraging traditionalists to be more open and encouraging the open people to try to be more traditional. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, it sounds like maybe you're always in between those two, but you don't ever get to stand in one place. I'm wondering what that's like for you. Yeah, somehow for me, the most comfortable place is to be in that uncomfortable liminal space. I think that um, you mentioned tefillah before. Um, so often I'm thinking that the most important thing for people to do in terms of tefillah is to come up with a, a poem or a meditation that um, reflects the, the, the content of um, a traditional prayer, um, talking about you know form and content again, but that, that you don't use that's those same old words. But at the same time, for other people, when I see that, um, you know, they... they are forgetting the original form. I feel like I have to. I'm, I'm interested in pulling them back and showing them the beauty of the of the original tefillah. So yeah, that's. I'm. I feel most needed or most 
uh, comfortable is the word. I feel most comfortable standing on that very narrow point between the two sides. And are you optimistic? Like, in other words, I, I almost feel like the polarization process of these two camps, if that's where you want to use, they seem to be pulling farther and farther apart. Are you optimistic, both professionally in terms of the kind of people you're trying to train and personally, that this complicated, uh, broken middle is going to hold? When I see and talk to the education students that we're training here, I'm completely optimistic because those people are very comfortably balancing the tradition and the innovation. They don't, they, they don't seem to have a problem with bringing in the content and the meaning making, bringing in the, the, the original text and, and the value. They're so good at it. So I'm, I'm really optimistic. And with personally, I, I guess I'm pretty optimistic too. There have been times in my life where I have veered very far one way, caring very much about the traditional text um, and much less about the alternative. And there have been times in my life where I have only cared about the alternative and thought about the poem and thought about the, the meditation and thought about the, the picture that I drew in a spiritual way or what have you. Um, but people go back and forth. People, people are pendulum like, I think. And we're always, we're always, the gravity is pulling us towards the middle. I really believe that. I feel like that's been the story of my life. And I see that's the story of our students here. So the balance, it's good to go back and forth and it's good to be pulled towards the middle. Okay, so are you going to do this project for your Tubishvat coming up? Are you going to construct your own Tubishvat Seder for you and a hundred of your closest friends? Well, it's three days away. Um, Plenty I, of time. Yeah, I think, I hope that we'll do something like that in, in my house. Um, my daughter, her birthday was last week. Um, her birthday is Zion Shvat, so she's a Shvat baby, and her name is Ella. Um, we named her after a tree. Because uh, she's a tree baby. She's a Schwat baby. Um, so she, she likes this holiday too. So likely, likely we will do something. Um, talk to me again next year. We'll see. Okay. So by next year, if any of you are in the Arnona neighborhood around this time of year, you are more than welcome and invited to come over to experience a traditional and innovative uh, rooted and yet open, which is actually a good term for the tree. I I'm, seem to be falling into these tree metaphors uh, uh, all by myself. We should do some yoga. The rooted in the ground, wow. the arms raised. Vita, yeah. you are so evolved. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's really a uh, very impressive thing. So uh, this is amazing, but also very challenging. I imagine people out there listening to this are thinking, this is not an easy road uh, to both care about the Midrash and care about the environment uh, it's caring about a lot and to be sort of, again, in these multiple places. Uh, and, but I think, you know, the tree that with that, I keep coming back to this idea of having roots but also stretching out is a really beautiful metaphor, I think, for what you've managed to do both professionally and personally.
So, on behalf of all of us here at this Pardes Life, which is really just me and I think Emma and maybe one other person, I want to thank you very, very much for your time. I look forward to hear. We look forward to hearing more from you through the podcast and other venues. You should check out Aviva's article also, which is also posted on El Mod. Uh, but it was a privilege having this time with you. Thank you so much. Sweet, I learned a lot. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Until the next time, thank you for joining us on this Pardes Life. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org.